Greetings, Mets fans. Welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of SB Nation's New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Chris McShane, and with me this week is Greg Karam. Greg, I just got back from Port St. Lucie the other day. How's did, did I miss anything here? Up north? No, nothing's going on up here. <laughs> the, uh, the, the nor'easter sounded like it wasn't quite, quite so bad as it could have been. No, we were supposed to get a little bit of snow, I think, but uh, I think it snowed for about four seconds and then it stopped and then that was about it, which is good because uh, I'm, I'm done with winter and I'm ready for spring cause, and baseball's right around the corner. Yeah, it, it, one of the nice things, my trip this year was a little later. This is four years running now that I've gotten down there, but uh, the trip was a little bit later than it usually is, but one of the nice things was that the minor league affiliates were – or the minor league players, I should say, not the affiliates, were pretty much in full swing. Uh, there were a couple of days that they played minor leaguers from other organizations. If they weren't doing that, they were playing each other. But as opposed to being there very early in spring training, they were actually playing baseball uh, uh-huh. instead of partaking only in baseball drills. So, that that was, was, so you got to see a little action on, on the minor league side, which is not something you normally get to see. Right, yeah, and that's... You know, I got to see Luis Mateo pitch in in baseball games, which is not something that many people have seen over the last few years. Um, <laughs> he does, in fact, exist. <laughs> he does. I was surprised that it, you know I wasn't going in and expecting it, but I guess I guess what I'm thinking uh, here right now is it, you can sort of be a little bit of a reality check for me. Uh, you know, some of the things I saw, all that sort of stuff. You know, I, I was there for a few days, and I got some players. I got a bunch of looks at um, some of them. You know, pitchers I, I probably only saw once. Mateo, I actually saw twice. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm curious to see if if any of this stuff is actually real, or if it was just stuff that happens for a few days. Okay. <laughs> so, so the one guy who who kind of jumped out at me. Um, He's got a great reputation with his glove. I know he's been spoken highly of on, on the site and here on the podcast is Luis Guillorme. Huh. Now, he, you know, he, he looked fine with the glove. I didn't see anything there that, that you know, didn't uh, confirm the things that I've heard and read from our own guys. But he did do a lot with the bat, and that's the side of his game that has a reputation for being very light. So, Well, I, sure. Well, when you say it jumped out at you, you're talking like what What specifically? Like was it, like it's, it was his contact ability, his power? Like what, what, was, uh, what was going on? I would say it was that he was driving the ball. Um, there's one batting practice session in particular, and the wind was blowing out, and it's batting practice, and it's spring training, so – you know, you take all that into account. But he was in a group with some other, you know, prospecty type of minor leaguers, and he's he was routinely hitting the ball well over the fence in right field. Uh, in, in some of the interleague games, or intra, I keep saying that it's intra squad, intra squad, intra squad yeah. games, <laughs> intra league, which is what baseball used to be. But <laughs> in some of the intra squad games. Uh, he ripped a double to the left center field gap. You know, uh, one of his singles that I saw, he, he hit hard. I mean, it was just a single. But it looked like he was putting good wood on the ball. And, you know, part of me says, all right, he did that over the course of a few days. That's probably not something that's real. But is there any chance that that sort of thing is, uh, you know, maybe a, a sign of something to come? Well, he's a guy who has good contact ability uh, and put the bat on the ball a lot last year, and he was the MVP of the, the Sally League. And, you know, part of uh, evaluating a prospect, I think, is looking at their, their batting practice and, and seeing what, the, what kind of raw power they are able to do in that, in that uh, environment. But the, the you know, Guillaume is supposed to have 20 power. You know, and so, but if if it's better than that, if it's you know, if it plays up a little bit more, if he's um, if he could hit the ball as hard as say 
Ruben Tejada. I mean, let's set the bar low here. Um, he's certainly got the, a better glove than, than Tejada probably did. So that would be very interesting because this is also a guy who's like a baseball rat. You know, this is a guy who lives and breathes it and works really hard and is a good kid. So um, at least, you know, according to what I've heard and, and from various people. So I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if, they, if there's going to be somebody who takes a leap. It's going to be somebody who works hard um, and makes contact with the ball. So it's something to keep an eye on. Yeah. And as I've learned over the last couple of years, if you take a photo of Luis Guillorme and post it on, on social media, he will find it. <laughs> or his family, somebody there. They're, yes, they're, he, he or yeah. his family will definitely find it. Um, I think at this point, my, my follower count going up at spring training is just that year's minor leaguers and their parents following. <laughs> yeah, when, it's, when it's, a, it's a little weird when uh, you write something or do something about a prospect and then they actually like they find it. and It's a little... It's a little unsettling, but kind of cool at the same time. Yeah, there's sort of that that blend of uh, like, oh, that's a person that I've you know been around in real life, and then there's that. But in the abstract, that's the Mets minor leaguer or prospect. Right. Yeah. I was actually Mark Craig and I were having a conversation about sort of that terminology, and I said that I think it is a useful distinction to refer to someone who is in the minors as either a prospect or a minor leaguer accordingly, uh-huh. you know, whereas like not every one of the 200 players is necessarily really a, a prospect. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you yeah, I guess you don't want to, you don't want to say anything poorly about somebody. You don't want to just like rip them apart or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I get your, I get what you're saying. But yeah, in, in terms of the guys who, I mean, and Guillaume is on our top 25. I should probably have it in front of me for the exact number, but I know he's on there. Oh, yeah, he's like, uh, he's in the teens. I think he's in the high teens, I think, like six, 17, eight, uh, 17, 16, something like that. I think. I don't remember. Yeah. I'm the guy who wrote it. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's all right. That we're just, we don't want to give it all away. We, we want everybody. Yeah. Mets top 25 prospects. You Google that. You can check it out. You can get the exact order. Um, but in terms of the the, the prospecty guys, uh, the, the ones towards the top end, um, Desmond Lindsay's home run power sort of stood out in batting practice. I didn't see him actually participate in any of the games. Um, you know that maybe that's a sign of sort of the the track that he's on and when they expect him to to start playing. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, well, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that schedule looks like on the minor league side when they're in actual spring training. But it wouldn't surprise me if he was on a an extended spring training track to play in in Brooklyn, which is where they've sent most of their uh, top prospects in recent years. But um, you know, except for oh, guys who drafted out of high school. You know, the exception being uh, Dom Smith, who was sent right to Savannah. So they tend to take it a little bit more conservatively, and especially with a guy who's as raw as Desmond Lindsay, it wouldn't surprise me if he's sent to Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he saw some time there last year, but not that much. Um, right. But yeah, so I know it, so I saw some, you know, some home run power there with him. Um, Wilmer Becerra had he, there one particular session of BP where he was really driving the ball. Uh, you know, that, that was good to see. He's, he he's so tall and and sort of lanky looking still uh really yeah not not like the way Casey Meisner was tall and lanky looking yeah you know not that sort of extreme but uh you know i mean he's don't get me wrong he's still a big guy but you just look at the build and he just looks very very vertical you know it, um well he's like how tall is he uh i mean we can look it up. He's, I'm six two, and he's taller than me. I know. Okay, that. so then there you go. So every time I see a six four, foot four guy, I mean, they all look lanky to me. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's listed at six four, and you know he's twenty one. I don't know the last time that height was updated. If he was actually like six five, I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, but yeah, Lindsay and, and, and Becerra sort of stood out for showing some raw power. Yeah, uh, that's that's good to hear, especially on Lindsay. Uh, you know, he's a guy who's 
very athletic. At least that's what the reports say. If people have seen him live, you know, they say he's, he's very athletic and uh, seems to have a solid, quick, short level swing that can generate a lot of contact. So there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, and you know that sort of thing. Maybe if he pans out, we will forget about the Michael Kadire signing. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, I, I think a lot of people have already just kind of forgotten about the Michael Kadire signing because even though it, it was all really disaster, they went to the World Series. So you know, right. eh. they went to the World Series and then he retired and, and gave them and, the opportunity yeah. to go back. So. <laughs> Right, it wasn't a complete loss, even though it kind of was. <laughs> but yeah, th- those guys stood out. Um, Ahmed Rosario sort of looked like a new person, mm-hmm. where but, you know he's still young enough that there, there's some natural growth there. You know, if he just if he continued doing the exact same things, he would, you know, he would just get bigger at that age. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but it looks like he had put a little more into sort of upper body kind of stuff. You know, he, he looked like a, a bigger person compared to a year ago. Well, I mean, yeah, he's 20, right? Or Yeah. So yep. you can, you definitely expect him to be able to put on some more muscle. Um, I, I, I don't, you know, with a guy like that, who's got a quick bat, makes a lot of contact, puts on a little bit of power. And if he's able to keep his range and quickness, well, it's, the sky's the limit for him, really. Yeah, and he, he hasn't had that breakout year yet, but it still looks like he's on track to start the year in Binghamton. Yep. So that uh, Binghamton is a very interesting affiliate to watch. Not that that's breaking news to anybody who listens to this podcast, but you know, if you get Smith and Rosario in one place, uh, that's uh, as far as position players go in the system, that's about as good as you get from one affiliate right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think if there was anyone else, but. No one else really that exciting, but with those two guys, I mean, it's definitely the top affiliate that I want to see this year. I actually think I'm, I have tentative plans to go there uh, in early April, so we'll see. Ah, oh, very nice. Yeah, I'm hoping to finally get to a game in Binghamton. I have always seen them in New Britain, and now Hartford, whatever that stadium exists. Yeah, <laughs> I um, think yeah, sometime in June maybe. Yeah, I think June first is the is the date they're shooting for. Uh, but yeah, so sort of rounding out the top ten, um, Robert Gazelman was working on a curve a lot. One of the, the one game that he pitched in that I saw, um, I wouldn't say the curve itself necessarily looked incredibly sharp, and that's not a knock on it. It's just it, it didn't have it didn't have anything to it that jumped off the page, so to speak. But it uh-huh. was but it was working. Uh, he was, he was really throwing strikes and obviously his competition was, you know, Mets minor league position players, but, but it was, he looked like he was very much on top of his game, especially for, you know, the middle of March. Uh, he was throwing strikes. Uh, he, he looked like he was spotting the curve and the, the fastball. Well, uh, you know, and it worked and, you know, I know, he might need a little bit more than that, but I thought the curve, if it could do that against a higher level of competition, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I know, I know the old saying from Jeff is, I am not a scout. Mine, I am really not a scout, <laughs> but, uh, but that, that looks good to me. Um, and then Brandon Nimmo got into his first game action of the spring, at least I hadn't seen it reported that he played in any other games. Um, so the last day I was there on Tuesday, he got into uh, got into a game. He was playing center fields, uh, minor league games. They sort of configure the lineup any way they want. So I think he got about ten to twelve plate appearances in the time that I was watching. Oh, that's good. Um, and he looked like a little. Uh, it looked a little rusty. He had a few strikeouts against the lefty. Yep. Well, he had you know he had the interrupted. Uh off season with that foot strain or whatever. So just the fact that he's playing right now is, is encouraging. Yeah. So I, I didn't get any, uh, inside information on, you know, on what sort of schedule he's on, but it looked to me like 
if he starts the season on time in Vegas, I wouldn't be shocked. And if he doesn't start the season on time, I, I would not think that the the time that they keep him back in extended spring would be all that long. So, you know. That's, that's encouraging. Yeah, and obviously there's other things that need to happen, but when you look at the Mets outfield depth, uh, you know, it's very good with the five guys who are on the major league roster, and then there's a significant change if they have to dip down into the minors. Yep. Yeah. So, and then last but not least, uh, at least in terms of my notes of, of things that I saw, Dom Smith hit a home run against Dwayne Belo. Okay. In a game. So it's, it's Dwayne Belo. He's a, he's a borderline major leaguer, I guess. Yeah. But, he, you know, it was uh, it was a home run. It was right center field. Uh, but I will say, I think of the batting practice and games I saw, that was the only ball that cleared the fence that I saw. For uh, Dom Smith? Yes. So you watched the Dom Smith BP session, and he didn't he didn't put any over the fence? Like, he, like trying to lay into it, he wasn't putting any over the fence? Not that I saw. I mean, there there wasn't sort of that, like, home run derby feel to the sessions that, that sometimes you would see. Maybe just getting his work in? Yeah, but... Uh, you sound unimpressed. I, I, I don't know. I guess... <laughs> I wasn't blown away, and I, I I really wanted to go in and see, you know, what what he had to offer. Obviously, the 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 there's a range of opinions on what sort of prospect he is and what he might be and what sort of power he might have. So, I mean, the one thing I can say for sure, uh, and I wrote about it a little bit on the site after, you know, I spoke with Ian Levin, the Mets director of minor league operations. Yep. Um, now, of course, this is the Mets prospect, and this is the person in charge of the minor league system uh, at this point. So he's not going to say bad things about one of his top prospects. But, you know, the Mets seem to really, really, really think that the in-game power is going to show up and that the the ballparks he played in were the, you know, a, a very, very major factor in his home run total. Well, every time somebody talks about Don Smith, I hear a different excuse for why the, the power hasn't showed up. Like a couple of years ago, it was yeah, he was working on going the other way. Um, last year, it's kind of the ballpark. The doubles are going to turn into home runs. So uh, it remains to be seen. But um, he does look like, I mean, didn't he look, he looked bigger, right? I mean, I mean, not in a bad way. I'm saying he looks strong. Am I wrong? Or, or no, what did no, you, you see? You're not. I mean, you, and, uh, you, you could definitely see it arms wise in particular, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, obviously he, he has, he has put on weight since he was drafted that, you know, everybody knows that. Uh, but I think it's fair to, you know, that to say that it's been sort of different types, um, you know, his, his forearms weren't and, and his arms in general weren't as built up then either. So, you know, that, that's something that the Mets point to, that basically you look at his – you just look at the physical strength that's there and, uh, and you know, and the, and the power is going to come. So, yeah, I, I tried to watch him a decent amount. From what I saw defensively, uh, he, he looked pretty sharp. I know he has a, a very good reputation in that regard as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it, it's – it didn't but, jump out at you. You wanted right. it to jump out. It didn't jump out. So, all right. All right. right. So I gave Jeff a little bit of shit on Twitter for, you know, for the one home run I did see. But, uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, he's he's definitely got a flag in the ground on this guy. But, um, yeah. it's got, Look, it's going to be a big year for him because all those excuses now kind of go out the window. He's in a very neutral ball, ballpark in, in Binghamton. And... But then, but then you say all that, and I think he's still he's still like twenty twenty one years old, so he's still going to be one of the youngest players in the league. So even if he doesn't hit this year, it's nothing. It's really no reason to panic or anything because he's still so young. And but we'll you know we'll see. It's it's definitely going to be something that we're going to all going to be paying attention to this year. Yeah, he turns twenty one in June, so you know it's. Uh, I, I'm not saying that they're never will be power there. I'm just saying that in watching spring training, 
I didn't see, you know, in those few days, I saw several other players who, who made a harder contact and hit the ball, you know, farther on a more consistent basis. Huh. So, well, you know, yeah. that that's sort of what I, what you try to use, I think, in that, in the context of it is comparing them to each other because at least at least on that day everybody's playing on the same field or, or several fields but they're they're playing in the same weather the same atmosphere you know if, if they're on the same field the wind is blowing in the same direction so you know you can at least compare them to each other yeah which is sort of a, a well yeah 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 i mean when if you're seeing a guy's bp session and it's, it doesn't stick out to you in any way shape or form when he's up against not up against but alongside a bunch of non-prospects um it's a little worrisome but it's you know only one day or however many days you saw him so we'll just have to wait and see i guess yeah so with that the uh one thing that happened I guess officially the move happened, although the the writing was already on the wall by the time I got there. But one thing that happened while I was there and since the last episode of the podcast was the Mets' release of Ruben Tejada. Aha, uh-huh, yes. Which you wrote about on the site. I did. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I don't quite understand it. You know, there have been – I've seen some people defending it as well. He's the 25th man and they could use a different position and – all that and why spend the two million, or, you know, if, if you can have somebody else who plays different positions come in and, and make less. But if there is one thing that I really do not care about with the 2016 Mets, it's the the salary of the back end of the roster. I don't care if they save two million dollars if that if a player that is there could help them win one or two games to get back to the playoffs. That's kind of. That's kind of the thing that surprised me is that people kind of show. I, I he got released and it was met with a collective shoulder shrug, and people were uh, just kind of, oh yeah, it's saving money and fine. I was like, this this guy's like he's a he's a he's a major league player. You know, he's not he's not a replacement level. He's better than a replacement level player. And through the the course of a season, 162 games. You're going to go deep on the position player side. You're going to the people are going to get hurt. David Wright has a you know spinal stenosis. Cabrera has a knee injury already. You know these there's going to be churn. They're going to need guys. And if you're saying I'm okay with Matt Reynolds, well, all right. You know I like Matt Reynolds, but is like Matt Reynolds going to give you better production than Ruben Tejada is? I don't think so, but it's... Right. It, yeah. Reynolds, Reynolds took a step back last year. He, you know, he did not hit that well, and he was playing in Vegas for the entire time. Right. So, I mean, I think he can play a decent shortstop, and, and that, that, that's, you know, that's valuable. But the thing is, is that you didn't have to do it. And you, you could have kept Tejada and still ended up in a situation down the road where... You might still have Reynolds on the roster because Wright's on the DL and Cabrera's on the DL, and you know you're you're in a spot. But um, and, and the idea that like they needed a corner infielder as a backup as a justification for rostering Eric Campbell just doesn't sit well with me. I mean, the, guy, the guy's not very good. Uh, he's not very good defensively either. And you got you got Wilmer Flores on the roster who can play those positions if as well, if not better than Campbell. Maybe hits a little better, probably hits better than Campbell this year. So I don't know. It just it was very confusing to me because, yeah, maybe he's overpaid for his dollars per war or whatever you want to say. But, you know, it's like an insurance policy. He was an insurance policy already on the roster, fairly cheap. And they just let him go for no reason. It just it was it was very confusing for, to me. Yeah, I agree, and it, it's it's odd, and it's certainly not exactly the same uh, as, as the situation at, at second base. I love what they have done. I loved the trade of Nice for Neil Walker. Uh, I love that they got a comp pick for Murphy, and I love that Dilson Herrera is sort of waiting in the wings for, to take over, and they they should get another pick for Walker 
if everything goes the way we expect it to. But, you know, it, you you could have come off the World Series and gone into the season and and said, hey, Dilson Herrera is a, is a great prospect. Technically not a prospect anymore, but, he's, you know, we think he has a great future. He's held his own at a very young age. And they could have come into the year and said, hey, this is our guy who's going to be a starting second baseman to start the year. And then if it doesn't work out, the depth is these other guys, you know, whether it's Flores or Reynolds or, you know, even if it's Chikini, if he shows something. But they went and got Neil Walker. Yeah. And I know that that clears up a rotation spot and you get rid of Nice. And as much as you can't have too much pitching to start the year, you go in and, and, you know, would you rather have Bartolo on a one-year deal for cheap or Nice? On a, which is essentially a one-year deal that he has with his team options, but still, yeah, the the maneuvering there all made sense to me. But that to me looked like a team that came off a World Series and said, "We, you know, we're going to try to play it safe." Uh, you know, Neil Neil Walker's a very good player, and you know they they go out and get him. So the the whole idea of depth was something that we all sort of you know gotten used to at right. the trade deadline last year where you had Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe and you know you you, you took away at bats from guys who probably didn't have business playing on a you know on a contending team right so I, it's it's just odd because they have it in the outfield and I know there's been some you know some at least mentions or speculation of oh maybe they should try to trade Alejandro Diazza I don't think they should, but that for the same reason that I don't think I would have just let Tejada go. I mean, right, right. No, once, not, once, once, once somebody goes down, you know, then then people start coming up from the minors who may not be major leaguers, and it's it's people. I mean, people tend to focus on the twenty-five man roster as it starts the season. You know, the Mets are going to use twenty-two position players this year. You know, at, in various levels of, of use. But go on, go on the Mets depth chart and, and go seven deep throughout the, the minor leagues. It's not, it, it gets ugly fast. So I'm in favor of having as many major league quality players as possible. And so I would not be trading Diazza. I would not be letting Tejada go for nothing. So that's, that's my take. There we have it. And as we uh, sort of wind down here in our, our first half of the very Greg podcast, I forgot to mention at the top that uh, Greg Prince will be joining us uh, in, in the second half of the of this episode to discuss his book. Uh, but he'll be on in just a little bit. But before we get there, uh, the depth thing sort of comes into play maybe in the near future, uh, you know, Michael Conforto left a game yesterday with a, a little bit of tightness in his lower back, and obviously we've we've been through the absolute worst case scenario for a player having that sort of thing, and I don't think anybody's expecting that. But are you concerned at all that he'll miss opening day or anything, you know, any time beyond that uh, at this point, or do you, you know do you think his couple days of rest, get back in there, get loosened up, and he'll be fine? I think it'll be fine in the short term. It's just a little disconcerting that a guy who's like 23 years old tightens up and gets back spasms um, from a you know a bus ride. Um, now, I'm not sure how long the bus ride was, but it's still he's a 23 year old kid who's tightening up in the back. So I mean, I'm not really concerned in the short term. I'm sure he'll be fine. I'm sure he'll be able to bounce back and and be on the opening day roster, but. You know, it gives you a little pause. Uh, anytime you hear back stuff, it's a little disconcerting, um, especially for a guy that young. It's like, I want, you know, when I, 23-year-old kid, I, I expect expect uh, not to hear back spasms as something that's bothering him. So I'm a little concerned, but not really. Yeah, I think the first time I fully threw out my back was about at the age. It was, it was in the age 30 year of my life, if we can use <laughs> baseball terminology. Sometime in the 30th year that I, uh, that I, I really, uh, you know, did it in. And it was like, all right, that's, that's, 
That's the decade I'm in now. I get it. It's a shocking moment too, because you're like, "What is happening right now?" Yeah. Oh, it was it was so painful that I just all I could do, like I needed help with every. Couldn't even put on your socks. Right. You oh put, yeah. Yeah. I, no, I, forget it. I needed help with basic stuff, and I felt ridiculously old. And then all I could do was just laugh. I mean, that that was it. Like, you know, what else can you do? So. So, yeah, I, the one thing that gives me hope with Conforto's back, you know, the concern is that, like you said, you know, to feel something like that, that young, is a little like, huh, that's odd. But uh, I also think there's this sort of, you know, spring training, uh, you know, the, the bar might be lower in terms of what what a guy does. And Sure, yeah, he's not pulling – maybe he doesn't pull himself out if it's a regular season game or a playoff game, you know. Right. And I mean, whether or not that's a good thing, I don't know. You know, you, you read, um, if you read that men's fitness piece on David Wright's routine now to, to deal with his spinal stenosis, it's a really good read. Uh, but even he was saying that he was sort of feeling this back stuff in spring training and early last season. And he just thought he had a, a tight back and didn't report it, didn't report it. And one of the things that he has said in the past was that you know he's he's played through injuries before and seen sort of the the downside of it uh, of it all and that he wanted to be more forthcoming. But even in that situation with that experience, you know you you have sort of this you know this mentality that you as you know these guys are ridiculously good athletes who have done this for their entire lives. They have this mentality that they can play through it. So I almost wonder if if Conforto's age and maybe the fact that he's a little bit you know, uh, not quite a full generation younger than David Wright, but a little bit younger. I, you know, I wonder if the average 20 to 23 year old player now might be a little more likely to report something or, or, or bring up something that feels off or, or not, you know, that's, that's, that's more of a, an open question. I don't know if that's the case. Yeah. That's a little bit more case by case, but, um, you just hope it's not something very serious that, caused him to I mean the war, the things that they said after the game were that it was no big deal so not going to hit the panic button yet yeah so before we switch Greg's uh, we're going to we're not going to do the emails this week we, there are a few but Jeff will be back next week two of them at least are very very geared towards Jeff so uh, we're, we're going to leave those alone but uh, we'll, we'll take care of housekeeping as Jeff does Yes. around this time so uh, this is episode 177 of Amazing Avenue Audio the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue you can find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue and you can like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Amazing Avenue you can find the podcast on iTunes if you just search for Amazing Avenue Audio and you can listen or subscribe right there Uh, we encourage you to do both as always and we also encourage you to rate and review the podcast you can also hear it on the stitcher app download it directly from the blog talk radio site which is blogtalkradio.com slash amazing avenue or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at amazing avenue proper i'm your host chris mcshane you can find me on twitter at chris mcshane my co-host this week is greg Karam. You can find him on Twitter at Greg Karam, K-A-R-A-M, just in case. Thank you. Anybody didn't know how to spell that off the top of their head. Uh, And yeah, we'll be back in a second with Greg Prince. Joining us now on this week's episode of Amazing Avenue Audio is Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Greg underscore Prince. You can find him online throughout the year at faithandfearandflushing.com. Uh, and more importantly, today, you can find him on your uh, favorite bookstore's bookshelf with his new book that is recently released, uh, Amazing Again, How the 2015 New York Mets Brought the Magic Back to Queens. Uh, it's got a forward by Howie Rose. So Greg, it's it's good to have you on. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, at what point last season 
did you think, oh, this season might be a book? Uh, it probably began to cross my mind sometime in August, maybe September, but, but honestly, I was not the proactive one on this, uh, which probably doesn't happen very often. Uh, I got a call the afternoon leading up to game one of the World Series from a book editor whom I'd worked before who said, you know, this Met thing is pretty big. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe they'll win the World Series. If they do, we'd love to have a quickie book out. And I think one of the reasons they uh, called me is because they knew that I had written up most of the season, or at least, you know, half, uh, and, and, and then some, uh, in the course of, the, of doing the blog, and figured I could just kind of put it together from there as necessary, which is having now done three books and all, all of them based to some extent on, on what I've blogged, it's never really that easy. Uh, but um, I, I could definitely see doing it. The, the catch was, because it was a quickie book, that it was going to have to be done almost after the last out. Uh, it actually got to a point where if there was going to be a parade, I had to ask my editor, listen, I need to go to the parade. <laughs> <laughs> We want that in the book anyway, but um, the, the catch also was, aside from the uh, the time constraints, was the Mets had to win the World Series for this to happen, and then you know they want to rush it out. They you know, had, had the presses waiting theoretically, and uh, with the idea being that if Mets fans were just so intoxicated by victory and they're out buying their commemorative hats and T-shirts and sweatshirts and everything else, hey, I'm going to grab that book too. So, you know, maybe it was a little cynical, but that's okay. It's like the, the tension for, for, for winning the World Series. Um, so I got to work on it basically while the World Series was going on, not, not during the games, but certainly between them. And it was kind of an odd position to be in because, of course, I'm rooting for the Mets to win because I'm rooting for the Mets to win, but I'm also kind of rooting for this book to happen, and I'm not comfortable doing that because I didn't really want to bring anything sort of self-involved into the World Series, you know? I just wanted, them, I, I, I wanted them, the World Series to be a pure experience, and somehow it just felt like I, I was screwing with the baseball gods, so I tried to keep it out of my mind, <laughs> which it really wasn't, but, you know, uh, in essence, the Mets fell behind 2 nothing, as you know, and, uh, you know, I worked on the book anyway with the hope that uh, by Game 3, you could come home to City Field turn it around. I pushed out about five chapters, got on a train, went to see game three, which the Mets won, which was fantastic. And all right, you know, we're back in the series and this book is still alive. Win game four. We'll take it from there. And well, they lost game four, got depressed. <laughs> really work on it before game five, but I said, okay, win game five, then we're back in this. And then, you know, I just sit at the computer and I get this done. And well, game five didn't go that way. So I, I figured, you know, we were done. And uh, I'd say, you know, thanks but no thanks would, would be the response I would get. And to my surprise and delight, I got a call on the day after, not not the Monday, but the Tuesday, the World Series ending Sunday night to Monday morning, from, from my editor saying, you know, in so many words, we want to do a book anyway on the, the year the Mets won the pennant. So uh, I said, great. And uh, it didn't have to be rushed quite as much. Uh, I had a little more time and a little more space. And... Um, I just, you know, whereas everybody else had an off-season, I just kind of continued being inside 2015, it felt, well into January, because uh, you get a manuscript in by December, and, you know, then you get page proofs back, and, you know, we, my involvement with it wasn't really done until the middle of January, and then, you know, as I like to say, there was a blizzard, and we got Yohannes Cespedes back, and then it was spring training, <laughs> and here we are. Yeah, I know that, that uh, it worked out well, and... You know, I think one of the things, too, that helps uh, right now is that we went from the Mets having these records, losing records, for several years in a row to being catapulted into the World Series. You know, sort of not out of nowhere if you were paying attention to the team, but out of nowhere in terms of wins and losses from, from even just in 2014. So, you know, if this season ends the same way, I feel like there might be a little more frustration among Mets fans, but 
winning the pennant felt pretty great, you know, and, it, and I think it is worth celebrating the fact that they won the National League. And obviously that's not the ultimate, uh, you know, sort of achievement and a moment that we can have as fans, but, you know, it, 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 it set it set itself up very nicely uh, for a, a positive off season. I mean, as you said, you know, getting Cespedes back certainly made that uh, <laughs> yeah even um, more I, so. Yeah, I think you know, I think what what, what helps make 2015 a story is the trajectory that it took. You know, starting from shall we say limited expectations. Uh, as you said, there there were signs and hints that this was going to be a better team, but I. You know, wouldn't have put any money on them. You know, crashing through the way they did, and you you have the fantastic start. You have then some injuries that contributed to a team-wide slump that felt like it was never going to end. But you you also have moments where you you look at the standings and say, you know, the Mets are terrible, but they're only two games out of first place, and that that seemed to be the theme for uh, well into July, and. Um, <laughs> And you know, it was just one of those. You know, as, 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 as a veteran of the the online world yourself, you, you know how it is where you're, you're sort of caught in between where the Mets are and what the Mets feel like. <laughs> and they did not feel like a contender for a division title and a team that was going to go to the World Series. They felt like you know the the usual nonsense of of, of the uh, first half of this decade. But they they, they hung in there. The Nationals did not run away. And, you know, then you have that transformational period where they turn over about 20% of the roster, plus getting guys back from injuries, you know, entering August, and then they take off. And that, that, that's where I think it, it really became a story that, you know, more than just aficionados could, could wrap their heads around because it was just so exciting to watch every night. And the Mets hadn't been like that in so long. Uh, and you know there there was that out of the blue factor again not not from you know the the depths of ninth place maybe circa nineteen sixty eight to sixty nine but you know there 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 you know there was no ramp up it was <clears throat> a team that was just kind of scuffling along in the standings to a team that was now beating everybody in sight one year later so um, it was just a you know a fabulous ride to be on. And I, I think the one thing baseball has going for it that the other sports, the other major sports, don't is that there is some romance in a pennant where there isn't necessarily. And I, I won't speak for Carolina Panther fans, for example, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if you if you could sell a book based on the, the conference championship. I mean, you know, they had a hell of a year, but that's just the way it is. With you know, the 1951 Giants. Uh, are arguably right. uh, more famous for winning the pennant than, you know, certainly more famous for winning the pennant than losing the World Series. Our, our beloved 1973 Mets, uh, it's almost an afterthought that they didn't win the World Series in the scheme of things. Uh, you look at the uh, the 75 Red Sox are remembered at least as well for their participation in the 75 World Series as, say, the, the 75 Reds who won it. So, uh, you know, there are examples like that. And Oh yeah, and I, that's that's what I was going to say. Uh, I was going to bring up the Giants. You know, you have one of the most iconic calls in sports history is based on winning the pennant. Uh, you know, so that that's that's exactly where my my mind was going with that yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, the it, I think this you know the the season gave us, especially from that you know early on in, with the winning streak. Uh, you started to have that buzz, and then once things, you know, kind of bottomed out and then came back, the season provided quite a few games that were games that were of the sort that, oh, I, you know, I vividly remember being there in person, or if I wasn't there in person, you know, I, I remember where I was uh, for for this game and that game, you know, I I I remember the details of the weekend when Cespedes hit the three home runs in the game against the Colorado Rockies, for instance. Um, you know, I I don't think I'll ever forget the seats I had for two of the games when they caught the Nationals in that weekend series at City Field. Those sorts of things that you know they don't stand out quite as much when the team doesn't win as many games as it loses. 
Yeah, I mean, we all have our private memories and, and you know, that quote-unquote, that game I went to. Uh, and, you know, there, there were exciting moments, but they, they fall away from the mass consciousness. Even, I, I would dare say, from, from last year there were games, and, and I was kind of careful to include them that I, that I think will probably be lost to more re- the, the historical retellings uh, outside of this book just because it doesn't necessarily fit neatly into the narrative. But, um, you know, you're, you're building towards something in the course of a year, and you're just paying more attention as a fan. So, you know, you, you get the, that, that three-home-run game, or, you know, and then a couple of nights later you've got, uh, you know, David Wright coming back and, uh, you know, hitting a home run in his first at bat. Even some games, again, or, or before the, you know, the transformation, uh, I think my, my favorite part of the season in terms of doing the book was re- revisiting that time where it looked like they were never going to win again, which I guess could, you know, refer to just about any time of the season before August, but the uh, where they go out west in early July, and, oh, they're doomed because they're going to be facing Kershaw and Granke, and then they go to San Francisco. Yeah, and we and, and you know I I think there is a reliance sometimes on precedent at the expense of the present, and you know we we remember you know this year or that year when they went out west and they had a you know some two and nine road trip and Jason Bay went over California and that kind of thing, <laughs> and well you know and that didn't happen this time that they sort of you know. Uh, hung in there for for lack of a more sophisticated phrase right it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't that 2006 west coast trip where they dominated but they you know they they held their own you know they they they, they did most of their dominating against lousy teams quite frankly except for for the nationals but i mean you know what what if the mets had dominated the lousy marlins and nationals in 07 and 08 you know where they're the uh, entire course of uh, Mets history would have been different. So, you know, I, I, I applaud all those sweeps of uh, the uh, quote-unquote weak sisters of the <laughs> National League. And, uh, you know, again, it was, I, I think just, you know, in, in the same way that there, there was probably some phenomenal play in some win in a random year that involved a ball bouncing off a wall and somebody making a great relay and catching a guy at home. That doesn't that isn't remembered because it wasn't in a pennant race. So, but when when you describe that sort of thing, uh, vis-a-vis 1973, the ball that Dave Augustine uh, hits and Richie Zisk is thrown out of the plate because it bounces off the top of the wall and it's Cleon to Garrett to Hodges, you remember that. So you know other guys have hit three home runs in a game, for example, and that's nice, but you might forget it. But it's a, it'll it'll stick with you. New and Heist, for that matter. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, being the three home runs, it's all you know. It, it just makes for a better story that way. And you know, I mean, the the, the only uh, real uh, blow, blow pack I've got on this book uh, from a couple people, it's like you know, what, <laughs> you need a better ending. Meaning, you know, who wants to read it? <laughs> losing the World Series, but, uh, <laughs> you know, just to get as far as they did and to kind of immerse yourself once more in. In something that is uncommon to the Met experience, because again, eight postseasons, five pennants, unfortunately, only two World Championships. But you know, it's, I, I suppose if you know you're a team that goes to the World Series a lot or you know wins a lot of division titles, it's not that exciting to talk about this sort of thing after a while. But you know, when you haven't broken through in a while, I, I think that's what made it special. Yeah, and it's it's sort of interesting when you you know when you put it in that historical context, right? Uh, to to go to eight postseasons and win five pennants is is kind of a ridiculous rate of success once you get there. Uh, you know, even though there's only been the two world championships, to, to get to that point that frequently once you are there, I you know, in a sense, it, it makes me think have. In the rare instances that the Mets have been good enough to do it, you know, we maybe we've been a little bit spoiled by their postseason play. Would, yeah, would you, if, if you think about it, and I don't know if this will <laughs> that this will detract from my sales if I say it, but in, in a way, <laughs> the World Series of 2015 may have been the worst postseason series the Mets have ever played. Which is to say, the Mets have played mostly competitive, exciting, thrilling, if not always winning, postseason series. Uh, you know, they, they've only lost six of them because, uh, you know, eight minus two is six, and there had to be an elimination every one of them. But, 
you know, the only two that were that didn't go any further than you know one win for the Mets or you know five games was uh, 2000, which nobody really likes to remember, and last year. And honestly, I thought you know the 2000 they were in. 2000, they were in every game, and uh, it, maybe I was just younger than this. It felt more competitive last year. I know that they were ahead in every game, and they took leads in, but ah, there, there was something just a little off-key by the time they got to the World Series. Uh, you know, still, again, thrilling to be there. I had never been to a World Series game before Game 3 last year. But um, I guess, you know, to your point about being spoiled, the, the Mets always make October, and in this case November, memorable. And uh, I, I once uh, read a line from Roger Angel, which was, uh, the Mets go melodramatic in October. It's in their DNA. <laughs> and there is just some, something about the way they, they approach it. They're, they're, they're never, you know, bounced in three straight or four straight. They, they don't get blown out of games. You don't see them down 14 to one, which does happen in postseasons. Uh, you, you're always left, you know, Thinking, okay, all, all we have to do is you know get a guy on, another guy on, another guy on, and maybe maybe Ventura hit one over the fence, <laughs> something crazy <laughs> like that. And you know, sometimes it actually happens. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, that that all rings true. Um, now, I, I'd like to think a lot of our listeners. I, I think I think there's a decent amount of overlap. I think if you read Amazing Avenue and you listen to this podcast. You're aware of Faith and Fear and Flushing uh, and, and familiar with Greg's work, but I just wanted to quote a little bit from, from Howie Rose's uh, foreword here. So he, in it, he's talking about sort of doing what the Royals did, coming back, achieving the ultimate uh, goal with the World Series championship in 2016. Uh, but but Howie says, and I, and I quote, before that takes place, however, enjoy a far more detailed reflection on the Mets' fifth National League championship season written by a man who takes each Mets win and loss and finds the, just the right words <clears throat> to tap into the emotions that somehow relate to every friend who reads his work. End quote there. Uh, but if, if you're not familiar with Greg's work, I think, you know, Howie there sort of sums it up very well. Um, you know, and, and as you guys often, you and Jason often say at, at Faith and Fear, it's, uh, you know, it's a Mets blog for Mets fans who like to read. But, uh, but, you know, I think Howie gives it some some of that context, and you know, the work on the site obviously sets up uh, you know the style of it. And you say very early in the book, you know, if you're looking for inside information and behind the scenes, this is you know that this is not uh, this is not what I'm here for, but rather to sort of relive the season as as the expert Mets fan that you are. Yeah, well, first off, I, I appreciate you reading that out loud. Uh, you know, I've been listening to Howie Rose for close to 30 years, and the first time I, I, got, I guess I spoke to him once, introduced myself, hi, I'm whatever, and he was, he was very nice, but the, the first time I, I really spoke to him was when he was promoting his book a couple of years ago. Yes. And it was one of the few times that I think I was starstruck. <laughs> you know, I've, worked, I've worked as a journalist uh, on and off throughout my career, and you know, I, I was the Chris Farley show. I was uh, your Howie Rose, you know, who <laughs> <laughs> hosted Mets Extra. I mean, that that to, to, to me, I mean, to, to me, that that alone was you know the the, the apex. Never mind broadcasting games. So uh, you know, to, to reach a point where you've got somebody like that, you know, writing very nice things about you. Uh, was very <laughs> was very gratifying. Uh, I, you know, I I was lucky enough to uh, to, to uh, talk to Gary Cohn for my, my first book because uh, uh, I'd, I'd asked him to write the forward, and he said he didn't like to write, so we, we did a little Q and A, and it was very surreal being on the phone with Gary Cohn for 15 minutes uh, several years ago. And uh, this, you know, I didn't have anything to do with getting this forward, but uh, again, I was very flattered. And uh, yeah, just. Uh, you know, we, Jason and I, we, we love the Mets and we love writing about the Mets. Um, you know, as uh, some people may be aware, because I've told the story enough, but uh, you know, the, the, the blog blossomed out of a, basically an email relationship. Uh, you know, we, we, we met doing, uh, or we weren't doing it, we were just on an AOL Mets board, <laughs> uh, dawn of the internet era. <laughs> And we, we were like the two people who liked each other's work. And I guess other, other people kind of 
wrote in, you know, one or two words to express their, uh, or maybe two, one or two sentences to express their dismay with the uh, the Jeff Kent, uh, Todd Hunley Mets of that year, <laughs> that era. And, uh, you know, we wrote in full paragraphs and several of them. So uh, we, we just kept doing that with each other and shared it with other people. And, uh, you know, once the, the, the phrase blog kind of filtered into our consciousness, we just decided to do it. And that was 11 years ago, and uh, continued since. And just very gratified that you know as many people enjoy it as they do. And uh, I, I have to confess, spring training 2016 isn't the most exciting subject matter at this point. <laughs> the, it's kind of gone on for what feels like months. And we say this every year. And you know, it, it's like you know amnesia. You get oh boy, it's spring training and baseball is back. And uh, every year, you know, I, I, I tend to say you know. Don't get, I, I hate to tamp down people's enthusiasm, but like, you know this isn't really the season. The season doesn't start until opening day. But you know, this year I decided, you know what, I'm in such a good mood about the Mets and having you know, not only gone to the World Series, but being in a position perhaps to do so again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a good attitude towards spring training this year <laughs> and not, not dump on it. And then like, I just found myself with nothing to say after <laughs> because it's spring training, and it's it's a rite of uh, it's a rite of passage every year, and soon enough we'll we'll have real games to write about again. So yeah, yeah, I was to. I was talking earlier in in the episode about having just gotten back, and one of the nice things about going down later in spring, uh, aside from seeing more minor leaguers, that sort of stuff, but just on the calendar, coming back later, you know, opening day, opening night, as as it is this year. Uh, is less than two weeks away. You know, normally I'm down there in early March, come back, say, March 6th, 10th, something like that, and you still feel like the season is very, very far away. Um, so it's nice to have a sort of a short a short break in between this time. But, um, but yeah, the the book, I, I think I called it on Twitter either last night or earlier today, uh, you know, one one of the princisms. Uh, so as you, as you go through, uh, you know, if, if you're new to this, new to the book, and you're wondering what what it'll be like when you pick it up, as you go through, not only do you have a, a detailed, knowledgeable, well written, uh, you know, reliving of the season, but uh, Greg, you you have a a way of throwing in things every now and again uh, that that just a nice whether it's the turn of phrase or you know the, the just a focus on a particular player or a subject that you you know you might otherwise pass over uh there there are moments throughout it, 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 that you you'll smile you know it, there's enough to smile about with the, what the Mets did but uh but there are things that get thrown in and i i think that that really helps to uh distinguish it uh and, and at, at a time when and I am very, very pro technology and video, and and love all that stuff. But at a time when you could find a million different clip videos with somebody's personal choice of, uh, you know, of background music, and as a YouTube clip, uh, and then you know, or SNY, or was it Fox Sports or SNY? I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but there was that nice hour-long special about the team and the season and all that sort of stuff. Oh, right. The, uh, the tears of joy. Yes. yes. Yeah. So, it, you know, there's there are certainly avenues to go uh, down and, and get that sort of video stuff. But to me, kind of taking a step back and separating from the screen, uh, and even if you are reading it digitally on a screen, technically, it just taking a step back and, and – Thinking of it in your mind and, and reading about it is, is sort of an enjoyable way to uh, to go through it, and you know that's that's something that I think we all enjoy when we listen to games solely on the radio as well. Is that it's it's the words in your imagination, uh, and, and, and baseball really lends itself to that. So, so. Well, I appreciate that. I'm you know, happy that came through. I think one of the uh, things I wanted to achieve with this book was, although I don't have the, you know, literal credentials of the guys who who covered the Mets circa 1969, 
you know, there were a bunch of books that came out, pro- probably right after the World Series, <laughs> some of them, in, in that same uh, quick book vein, um, and some that came out, you know, by, by next spring, that captured, you know, kind of that moment-to-moment feeling and urgency and emotion uh, of that season, which is, you know, where I came in to being a Mets fan when I was a kid. But I had no background in it, and I didn't really know what was going on. I, I, I probably remember about 5%. I mean, there's some very strong images that have stayed with me through the years. But you know, reading those books, whether they're, you know, they were written by Joe Durso or George Vesey, or uh, the one edited by Dick Schaap and Paul Zimmerman, Maury Allen, uh, Leonard Schechter, uh, uh, Leonard Coppin wrote, wrote a great Met history, um, shouting out a lot of people who will never hear their name, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I, I would take those books out of the library and kind of fill in the blanks. And as I, you know, grew up and, and revisited those books and collected them, and even, you know, in my adulthood, you know, I had a real sense of, of what it was like to be in New York, you know, as the Mets were becoming this story for the ages. And I hope in my own way that I've, you know, produce something that not only can be enjoyed now uh, by people who were there, but also maybe, you know, if, if you're a little younger and maybe you were not a fully conscious in 2015, or maybe you discover the Mets, uh, you know, X number of years from now, you can pick this up and you can say, oh, that's, you know, th- this is what happened for that that emblem that's on the wall or hanging from uh, the facade uh, at City Field that says 2015 National League Champions. You know, so that's who you know Joanna Cespedes was and what he did, and that's you know who David Wright was and so forth, and that, and, the, and more importantly, I mean, really coming from where I do is like that's what it was like to be in the stands, because you know like, like you you pointed to, I, I kind of want to make that clear for people who did, didn't know who who the hell I was <laughs> if they happen to pick up this book somewhere, was saying, listen, you know, this is not, you know, this is not the worst thing money could buy. This isn't Pedro Carlos and Omar, uh, if you remember that book by Adam Rubin. I mean, it, you know. That would, that would be a great book to read. I would, I would read it tomorrow. <laughs> but um, this is, you know, what I do. Uh, I, I write from this perspective. And it, you know, one, of, one of the things I also made clear right up front was, you know, I am going to lapse into the first-person plural. I am going to say we and us a lot. <laughs> uh, I don't mean it out of, like, some insane sense that, you know, somebody handed me a uniform and I'm, I'm taking the field and I'm not delusional. But, you know, when you love a team, at least when I love a team, you know, I feel, it, 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 not that I am a part of it, but I guess that it is a part of me. So in the course of watching a game, you know, hey, you know, we're winning, we're losing, that kind of thing. So it, it seemed awkward to, to, to try it without that. I, I think I did maybe uh, for, for, for my, my earliest uh, stab at doing the earliest chapters. Uh, and I just said, you know what? This this has to be in the first person plural. Uh, it's just the kind of book it's going to be. Again, it's it's not a memoir or anything. It's not my story. But, um, you know, it's our story is the way I look at it. Uh, it's if, uh, you know, I, I when the... St. Louis Rams uh, were announced as moving to Los Angeles. Uh, I read a number of uh, takes that said, that, uh, you know, don't ever say we when it comes to sports because they'll take your team away from you. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's just, I understand that, and you're absolutely right, but what fun is that? <laughs> I, I, I didn't get into, you know, I didn't get into being a fan, you know, to be cynical. I got into it so I could uh, put put on a hat and put on a shirt and. Um, spend way too much money on, on, on the official yearbook and uh, get caught up in this for uh, the rest of my life. So uh, it's, it's fun, hopefully, to, to reflect that and hopefully be able to transmit that in this book. Yeah. No, no, I, I, think, I think it all shows. Uh, so to, once again, the book is amazing again. It's available uh, certainly on Amazon, both the hardcover and on Kindle. Uh, I believe I saw it's also available at Barnes and Noble. Am I forgetting any other major outlets? Uh, there's pro- probably, um, but, you know, unfortunately, I don't know how many major outlets there are for books anymore. But right, right. Uh, <laughs> hope, hopefully, uh, it's in some uh, some smaller bookstores and uh, some some other uh, in indie book sites. Uh, I think if you request it, they will they will find a way to get it to you and. Uh, 
I, I would ask anybody who's listening, if they're really interested, to uh, keep an eye on Faith and Fear and um, on Twitter, uh, where I am, which you were kind enough to mention, at Greg underscore Prince. Uh, I'm trying to get comfortable with the idea of, of relentlessly promoting the, the damn thing. <laughs> I don't <laughs> well, really like to think that, but but uh, you know, I find out if I don't, nobody else will. Uh, so you know, I, I'm I'm doing you know various events uh, through the metropolitan area uh, while this thing is out, and you know, I I bring books with me or other places that, that have the books. So yeah, um, any way you can get them, go get them. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I certainly recommend it, and. The next event is this Saturday, uh, March 26th at Foley's. Um, that's, uh, they've hosted us a couple times for our live podcast. Uh, the, their, you know, baseball bar through and through. And, uh, you know, they, it, it's a good spot. <clears throat> so you'll be there, Greg, with, with copies of the book and signing and talking. And, and uh, what, what time does that Again, specifically, uh, that will be uh, approximately noon to three on Saturday afternoon, the twenty sixth. It's always uh, pretty close to Penn Station, Madison Square Garden. Uh, also, um, March thirty first, Thursday night, I will be at the Queens Library in Jamaica, the Central Branch, doing a kind of a, a wide ranging talk on uh, writing about baseball and and this book, and uh, announced for the first time anywhere. Uh, <laughs> My, my my first Long Island appearance, which I'm happy about because it's where I live, um, at a new bookstore uh, called Turn of the Corkscrew, uh, kind of wine and books in Rockville Center, uh, here on the south shore of Nassau County, uh, very accessible uh, by uh, major highways and railroad. So uh, that that'll be on Monday night, May 16th. So that'll be and like I said, you know, watch uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing dot com and uh, watch uh, Twitter. And uh, continue to uh, hopefully uh, come have, have more of this stuff come to, come to your neighborhood. It's, uh, <laughs> always fun to, to do that. Yeah. Well, thanks again for coming on. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and hopefully, there's going to be cause to write another book. Uh, okay. You know, several months from now. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation, and and absolutely, uh, let's uh, <laughs> this this time let's 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 have a let's have a, a lot of books about 2016 because that <laughs> will mean that uh, that the competition will be good for uh, uh, will be good for everybody's uh, enjoyment. I think. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. All right. Thanks, Greg. Thank you.